But I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 24. We're going to see a trial today in chapter 24. Spoiler, it's a trial that doesn't amount to much. Everything up to this point that we've seen with Paul being questioned and making statements, all those have been more formal pre-trial hearings. But today in Acts 24, Paul is going to stand before the governor, a man by the name of Felix, who will judge his case. And this case is one we're familiar with. We'll look at the specific accusations in a moment, but the process is one that you'll recognize. There's a prosecution. Uh, these prosecute, uh, th- this would be the Jews from Jerusalem who arrive with their, uh, with their attorney. And they want to see Paul prosecuted and punished for his alleged crimes. And then there's also a defense. Paul, being a Roman citizen, is given the opportunity to face his accusers and speak in his own defense and to tell his side of the events. And a lot of what's said, you'll see we've covered this ground already. And as I said, the trial doesn't amount to a whole lot. The Lord Jesus is sending Paul to Rome. We saw that back in chapter 23, verse 11. He's not going to let these men bring Paul back to Jerusalem where he would surely be killed. That's not going to happen. But Felix isn't going to declare Paul innocent. Paul is going to stay in Caesarea for two years. But Felix also isn't going to declare Paul guilty. But what he does do is going to be the emphasis of this sermon. Felix spends a good amount of time talking with Paul. Talking about the things of God. They speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. They speak about how God wishes us to live. And Felix, well, Paul has this incredible opportunity to share the faith with the governor. And the governor's conscience is pricked. Paul's words bother him. Felix's conscience accuses him. He's aware that something is off and he's not living as he should. But what does the governor do? Nothing. He sends Paul away and remains in his sin. That's our topic today. It's one of procrastination. Right? I, think, I think most of us know what the word procrastinate means. We say that we will do tomorrow what should be done today. We wait until the last minute to get things done. This is very familiar to a lot of us. There are some strange people out there who do everything as early as possible. I know there might be some of you here. I do not understand you. 
You do everything at the first possible instant you can. There are some of you, but there are probably a lot of us who can identify as procrastinators. But what about spiritual procrastination? Maybe we've become aware of an area in our life that is offensive to our holy God. And we say, I'll do away with that next week. I'll do away with that next month. I will stop doing that after the next pay period. Or after I graduate from college. After I get married. After my spouse and I start a family. We procrastinate. We delay repentance. We put off turning from sin and turning to Christ. It's spiritual procrastination and it is dangerous. The English pastor J.C. Ryle once wrote that tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow is the devil's day. When your conscience accuses you, don't put it off until tomorrow. When the Spirit of God working through the Word of God convicts you of sin, don't put it off until tomorrow. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Now, why would Raoul say that? Because he knows, well, because no one knows what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. And so the person who says, well, I'm going to enjoy this sin for one week more and then I will put it away. Maybe you will. Maybe you will turn from that sin and turn to Christ. Maybe you will plead to the Lord for him to help you and to take it away. Maybe you plead that you would find more contentment and satisfaction and rest in Christ than you do in that sin. Maybe that happens. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe that one week you promised yourself turns into one month, which turns into one year, which turns into a decade. And all the while, your heart is becoming harder and harder And the voice of conscience becomes harder and harder to hear. And your ability to turn away from that sin and the desire to turn away from that sin become more and more difficult. And maybe you become like Pharaoh or Judas. Don't put off to tomorrow what should be done today, tomorrow is the devil's day. We're going to see this in a moment, but first let's pray together. Lord, this is your word written by the finger of God. Men wrote as they were borne along by the Holy Spirit. Help us then as we read it together this morning to realize afresh that it is your word. 
every jot, every tittle, and written for our instruction and our edification that we might be built up for Christ's sake. Amen. Read our text, Acts 24. We'll read the entirety of it. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify It is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disrupting with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith 
in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Again, I'm not going to spend too much time on this trial. I know it's a majority of the text, but again, we've looked at a lot of this before. But there are a few important things I'd like to bring out. And the first thing, of course, that we have to ask is, who is Felix? Who is this man that Paul is standing before? And you can read up on on Felix, and I just decided to tell you about him in a slightly different way. An accurate way, but just a different way. Felix was a politician, the type of politician who is all too familiar. For example, the type of politician who sees a younger, very attractive woman married to another man, and he then works to end that marriage so that he can be married to that very attractive young woman. Sound familiar? How about this? A politician who is more worried about pleasing his constituents than doing what he knows to be right and just. How about a politician who takes bribes? Line my pockets and I'll give you what you want. You want freedom? You want to get out of jail and walk away a free man? A little money will do it. Now, I know what's going on. Your gut reflex is to think think of the politician that you did not vote for. But there are far too many Felixes on both sides of our political aisle. That's who Felix was. I've mentioned his wife, Drusilla, the aforementioned, incredibly beautiful young woman who was not always married to Felix. We'll get to her later. But this is Felix, the type of politician we love to hate. He's the one presiding over this trial. And it begins. Five days after Paul's escape from Jerusalem at night, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and their high-power Roman lawyer named Tertullus. Tertullus is a Roman name, which makes sense. You hire a Roman lawyer when dealing with Roman law and making your case before a Roman governor. Just imagine if some New York City lawyer had to stand before a Mississippi judge and a Mississippi jury in a Mississippi courthouse. You'd do a lot better hiring an attorney from Butler Snow in Jackson. Ananias knew this. 
So then they have Tertullus, the Roman prosecutor who makes the case against Paul. And again, I'm not going to spend much time here. We've, we've looked at this before. But there are three real charges. Paul was a political menace. Tertullus calls him a plague who stirs up riots among Jews throughout the world. He's a disruptor of the peace throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. That's quite a statement. He's also a religious heretic, some leader of this sect of Nazarenes. He has departed from the established, accepted Jewish tradition. And then what's the third case? Well, he brought, allegedly, we know this is a lie, he brought a Gentile into the temple and defiled it. It's a bald-faced lie. We know that is not true, but this is the charge. And remember back to the previous chapter, Felix has a letter written by the Roman tribune in Jerusalem. A letter that states, I found that Paul was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Felix has that letter. He isn't in the dark about what's going on. And to his credit, he gives Paul an opportunity to defend himself, which we see in verses 10 through 21. And really, when you consider both the prosecution and the defense There's a summary question we need to ask, and it's this. Who is really on trial? Is it Paul? Who is really on trial? What's this all about? It's about the Lord Jesus. They are offended by Jesus. The the grace and mercy of God that only comes through Him, that's what bothers them. That's what this whole thing is about. And isn't that why Paul keeps bringing up this topic of the resurrection? Have you noticed that? He keeps bringing it up when he's standing before them. In the previous chapter, he's standing before the council. And he says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He says something Again, in chapter 24 that we just read, I have a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Why does Paul keep talking about the resurrection? Because if it's real, if Jesus rose from the grave, it means that he is who he said he was. If there's a resurrection, it means that Jesus is vindicated and that he is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. If Jesus is alive, you can't dismiss him or ignore him or disobey him. That's why the resurrection is such a big deal and Paul comes back to it over and over again. But there's something else he says that I wanted to highlight, and it contributes to this idea of spiritual procrastination. He says in verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Again, he, just like he mentioned the resurrection before, he'd mentioned the conscience before. He did it in chapter 23. 
And wonder if I asked you, could you define conscience? Well, I want to use a definition from one of my former professors at RTS, Dr. Charlie Wingard, who says, The conscience is the God-given faculty that each of us possesses to distinguish right from wrong according to the law of God written on the heart. I'll say that one more time. The conscience is the God-given faculty that each of us possesses to distinguish right from wrong according to the law of God written on the heart. Every human knows that it's wrong to steal. It is wrong to take something that does not belong to you. And we know it because the law of God is written on the human heart. Now, as I mentioned earlier in our time of confession, our conscience must always be informed by the Word of God. Because there might be a time where we may think we're morally right and we may be completely wrong. We'll see this in a moment. We'll see this is what Paul does with Felix. Our conscience must be informed by the word of God. So let's get into this interaction between Paul and Felix. Again, the trial isn't going anywhere. The Jews aren't going to get a guilty verdict. Paul isn't going to be set free either, and we'll see Felix's motivations here in a little bit. So Paul's not going free, but he does have some liberty. His, his friends are allowed to visit. They're allowed to provide for his needs. They brought him food, clothing, no doubt. They spent time together in prayer with Paul. And then comes an opportunity. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Felix and Drusilla are probably bored in Caesarea. They, they want to listen to Paul, probably just for entertainment. So they said, come and speak with us. I want to tell you a little bit about Drusilla. Again, by all accounts, these are historical accounts, she was apparently an incredibly beautiful woman. An incredibly beautiful woman who was previously married to another man. And Felix works to dissolve that marriage so that he can be married to Drusilla. And before you feel too bad for Drusilla, I just want to tell you a little bit about her family. Her great-grandfather was Herod, the same Herod the wise men visited shortly after the birth of Christ, and the same Herod who also had all of the infant boys in Bethlehem killed. Drusilla's father was the Herod who is struck down in Acts 12 because of his arrogance. He stands up and says, the voice of God and not of a man, and he's struck down. Her uncle is the Herod who was so impressed by another attractive young girl's dance 
He says, whatever you want, name it. And I'll give it to you. And what did she ask for? The head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's Drusilla's family. And Paul finds himself in a similar position to John the Baptist, doesn't he? You remember why John the Baptist was arrested? He told the king, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And this made the brother's wife angry. Herodias, it made her angry. She wanted John arrested and eventually she asked for his beheading. Paul is in a very similar situation. Like John, Paul told the truth and did so boldly. He's summoned to stand before this Roman governor who has the power to free him or kill him. And what does he do? Verses 24 and 25. He spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And he also reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Paul preaches Christ. He preached that God the Father sent His Son to redeem sinful men and women, to bear their sins, to die in their place, and also to gift those same men and women His own righteousness. And that our only hope in life and in death is found in Him. The only way we're made right with God is through Him. So receive Him and rest upon Him alone for your salvation. That's what Paul talks about. But it's not where he stops. He kept pressing. He spoke with this couple about what? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. I'm going to imagine his words. Governor Felix There is a righteousness that your creator demands. A righteousness that you do not possess. You are a man mastered by his passions and lusts. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, but your life only seems to be evidencing the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, and the like. And governor, while you currently stand as a temporal human judge over me, you need to know that one day you will stand before the maker of heaven and earth. And you will be on trial. And you will have to give an account. It will be a terrible day of judgment for those who are not in union with Christ. So flee to Him. Run to Him today. Cry out, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You know, perhaps Paul said something like that when reasoning with Felix and Drusilla. 
Can you imagine if we had pastors saying such things to our politicians? Can you imagine a pastor standing on the floor of the House of Congress and reasoning with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment? That's what Paul said. But what happened? Look at verse 25. As Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Paul speaks and Felix is alarmed. His conscience is accusing him. He's struck by his guilt before a holy God and it alarmed him. But what does he do? Spiritually procrastinates. I love how the King James translates this. It says, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season. I will call for thee. Surely some of you at some point have thought the same thing. You're struck with God's word and your guilt and you say, go away. When I have a more convenient season, we can talk about this again. But brothers and sisters, please don't be like Felix. Also, don't be like Colonel Johann Rahl. Does that name mean anything to you? John Rahl, Johann Rahl. He was a Hessian military officer. That's a German military officer who was fighting on behalf of the British Empire. It was the year 1776. And Colonel Rahl was stationed at Trenton, New Jersey. Christmas Day, and Colonel Ryle is in the midst of a high-stakes card game when he's interrupted. The courier hands him a letter, an important letter, a, a letter that told that General George Washington, despite the horrible freezing weather, he had just crossed the Delaware River with his army. And he was headed their way. You know what Colonel Rawl did with that letter? He dismissed the courier, shoved the letter into his pocket, never read it, and resumed his card game. Later that next day, Colonel Rawl would be shot and would die from his wounds. And when his body was searched, that unread letter was found in his coat pocket. Do you believe, like Felix, that you can come to Christ at any time? When the season of life is convenient, don't believe it. It is a grave Danger to your soul. Because look what happens with Felix. Does his heart soften towards the gospel? No. He's looking for a bribe. How little 
Does he think of the Apostle Paul, that Paul is going to bribe him for his release? And so he leaves Paul in prison and hopes that money would be given him. And so he sent for Paul often and conversed with him. What happens in the end? By his actions, he would forfeit not only his governorship, but his soul. Be warned, brothers and sisters. The longer you put off coming to the Lord, the harder it is to come. When the Spirit moves, when the Word of God does its work, when you're convicted of your sin and your lack of righteousness and the coming judgment, what do you do? Don't be like Felix. Don't be like Colonel Ryle and take that warning and just shove it in your pocket, never to read it again. Instead, would we make John Calvin's words our own when he said, O Lord, my heart I present to you promptly and sincerely. Let's pray. Father, would those words be our own? That we would present our hearts to you promptly and sincerely right now and in a place where we, there is no pretense, but we stand before you as those fully dependent on mercy, as those who lack a righteousness of our own, as those who at the coming judgment want to be hidden in the righteousness of the perfect Son of God. So our hearts we offer to you promptly and sincerely. Lord, would you take them and forever hide them in the rock of ages for his sake. We ask in his name. Amen.